Thank you for tuning into this special presentation of the novel The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek, read for you in its entirety on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. The Dead Kids Club is what I like to call an everyman thriller, ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. It follows a divorced couple after the death of their son and asks the question, what would you do if the killer of your child got away with it? How far would you go to get the justice you deserve? the revenge you need, and how will you know when you're done? The complete book will be serialized over the next several months, between my usual short story episodes. I caution you that unlike most of the content on this podcast, The Dead Kids Club is a gritty thriller depicting scenes of graphic violence and mild sexual content, so if you're sensitive to that type of material, you've been warned. Please visit bedtimestories.studio to subscribe to my mailing list so you don't miss any chapters of this unabridged audio presentation and news about my upcoming thriller, The Tenth Ride. And now, part 16 of The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek. Before we start this week's installment, I would like to ask a small favor. Two, actually. If you've gotten this far, we're almost at the exciting conclusion, I assume it is because you are enjoying this book. I ask that you consider posting an honest review on the book's page at Amazon.com or on Goodreads. The links are in the show notes. It will help others discover this book and my other novels. Additionally, I'm hoping to garner support for a nomination at PodcastAwards.com. It would be a tremendous honor if you would visit the site and vote for Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs under the Fiction category. Again, the link is in the show notes for this episode. These are two small things in addition to subscribing to and sharing this podcast, that you, my listeners, can do so I can continue bringing you my audiobooks and short stories. Thanks for listening. Now, back to the Dead Kids Club. 37. Then it all stops. I hear a heavy thud, then a dragging sound. A couple minutes after that, the shower curtain is lifted off of me. I try to open my eyes, but one of them is swollen shut. The other only sees a blurry shadow. Can you stand? It asks. It's a man's voice. A familiar one. I reach for him with my good arm. He pulls me up and out of the tub. I grab onto him, trying to steady myself. He wraps my arm around his shoulder and guides me out of the bathroom, into the bedroom, and seats me on the bed. Lie back, he instructs me. I do so, and full consciousness starts to return. He runs his hand over my right shoulder. I wince. I feel him place a foot against my side, then grab hold of my arm by the elbow and wrist. This is going to hurt. Try not to scream. He pulls on my arm while pushing against my body with his foot. Just as I'm about to howl from the pain, the joint pops back into place, and the agony is replaced with relief. He turns his attention to my face, probing the wounds with his fingers. You have some fractures, and you're never going to be as pretty as you were before, but you'll live. You'll live. The words energize me, and I muster up enough energy to direct my attention to my Savior. Harold? I ask, not quite believing my still blurry vision. No, it's not old Harold standing over me. It's Harry, the shark Finn. Can you sit up? I push myself to a sitting position with my good arm and look around the room. Justin Berman is on the floor next to the bed. I lean over and see an ice pick sticking out of the side of his head and another one planted in his chest. Harold sees me eyeing the body. Don't worry, he's dead. He crosses over, retrieves the two ice picks, 
and slips them into a plastic bag and tucks them into an inside jacket pocket. Smart of you to wear gloves. The booties are a nice touch, too. I notice that he has gloves of his own, but is wearing canvas moccasins. How did you know I was here? I followed you. Thought you would do something stupid. I guess I underestimated you. I don't understand. No time to explain. We have to get you out of here. I push myself to my feet. My phone, I say. In the bathroom. He nods, then crosses into the bathroom and comes back with the phone, dripping wet. It fell on the toilet. I take it from him and try the power button. Nothing. Anything else? He asks. He caught me as I came in. I wipe some blood from my mouth. DNA, I respond, suddenly worried. As long as you're not in any databases, you should have nothing to worry about. You got lucky. If I hadn't come along. I know. Thank you. You can thank me once we're out of here. I suddenly remember something. There's a dealer on his way. What? I heard him on the phone a few minutes ago. Some guy is coming over with drugs. Then let's get going. He hands me my cap, which has my sunglasses inside of it. I slide them painfully onto my face, then put on the cap and limp behind him toward the front door. The pain is returning in spades. Every step tweaks my tailbone, and my face feels like someone took my head off and went bowling with it. He takes a peek through the peephole, then takes one last look around the room before asking me if I'm ready. I nod. Harold opens the door, and the open space in the hallway is immediately filled with three dark shapes. Even with my diminished senses, I recognize the one in the middle. Mikey Manzanetti. 38. Who is this? Your grandpa? Mikey asks. Mikey's associates have their guns pointed at me, and they back us into the apartment. Mikey closes the door behind them. So, what have you boys been up to? Harold and I stand silent. I'm too weak and scared to say anything, but Harold watches Mikey with keen senses, taking in everything, somehow watching all three men at once. Search them, Mikey instructs his goons, as he takes a tour of the apartment. One of them keeps his gun trained on us while the other holsters his and pats us down. He finds the ice picks and gloves in Harold's jacket, along with a pocket knife. On me, they find only the multi-tool, glass cutter, and about forty bucks in cash. Mikey returns, a grin on his face. Nice work in there. Killed them just like you did Anthony, huh? Neither of us say a word. I must say, I found your wife much more talkative. My hands ball into fists. Ah, don't worry. She's okay. Didn't have to hurt her much to get her to spill the beans on you. I start to lean forward. Harold holds out his arm in front of me, gently holding me back. Hey, I told you I would catch you. Didn't you believe me? There's a knock at the door. Mikey's arrogance turns to concern. He glares at Harold and me. Who's that? He asks in a low whisper. Drug dealer, I think to myself. Berman's resupply. I shrug. Mikey nods to his goons, and the one who searched us walks up to the door, redraws his gun as he checks the peephole. He turns to Mikey and holds up a single finger. Another knock. JB, you in there? I got your stuff. The doorknob twists, and the door swings open. The drug dealer freezes when he sees the room full of people, none of whom are J.B. He has a paper bag in one hand, which falls to the floor. Suddenly, he turns and runs. The goon closest to the door steps out into the hallway and fires a single shot. There's a crashing sound as the drug dealer falls dead in a heap. All right, time to go. We'll do this back at the warehouse, Mikey says, then to Harold and me. I don't have to tell you guys what'll happen if you try to get away or anything, do I? 
They escort us out of the apartment. We step over the body of the drug dealer, half of his head spread over a nearby wall, and out through the back doors of the apartment building. No one appears to have heard the shot, or if they have, they know better than to poke their heads into the hallway to see what's going on. There is a black SUV parked in the alley. We're shoved into the back seat. Mikey takes the wheel as his goons keep us covered with their guns. Hoods, he instructs, and the one in the back seat reaches into the cargo area and grabs a couple black sacks, which he tosses to us. I look to Harold. He gives me a slight nod and we put the hoods over our heads. The one I'm wearing smells of Rebecca's lavender-scented soap. In the blackness, the pain is vivid. I see images of Rebecca, beaten and bloody, and start thinking of how I'm going to kill Mikey Manzanetti. 39. We drive for nearly ten minutes. When we stop, I hear the rattle of a motorized garage door opener. The hood is yanked off my head, setting off a fresh wave of pain through my bruises, lacerations, and fractures. I blink with the one eye I can open and look around. We're in a small warehouse, part of which looks like it's dedicated to a machine shop. It's dimly lit, but I can see that there is an area in one corner where there's a folding table littered with bottles and cans and pizza boxes, and several folding chairs. Tied to one of them is Rebecca, her back to me. Harold and I are yanked out of the back of the SUV and escorted to where Rebecca is bound. As we approach, she lifts her head. Her nose is crusted with dry blood, and one eye has a shiner. Her lip is cut, and tears run down her cheeks. She smiles when she finally recognizes me. You're alive, she exclaims, relieved. I nod. Are you okay? I'm fine, she says. I'm so sorry. The baby, she explains. I know, I reassure her. It's okay. All right, enough with the touching reunion, Mikey says. He positions a chair across from Rebecca and motions for me to sit on it. Harold is left bookended by the two goons. So, this is how it's going to work. In a little while, Tony Vitale is coming down here. I'm going to tell him what I found in that poor fellow's apartment and what you were doing there, and he's going to give me the okay to pay you back for what you did to Antony. What makes you think he'll believe anything you say after you beat him to a pulp? Rebecca asks, nodding at my bruised face. Me? Mikey says amused. Honey, that's the way I found him, along with this old geezer. She looks to me, silently inquiring what happened. Then she looks back at old Harold. The confident, strong, purposeful man who rescued me has been replaced by his feeble, quiet, introverted alter ego. You're mistaken, she insists, then turns her gaze back to me. He had nothing to do with your child-murdering friend's death. Mikey nods, considering. An eloquent defense. A little thin on facts, but heartfelt. But I'm afraid it's not enough. You see, once I explained to Miss Vitale that I found him at the scene of another killing, and that that guy was killed exactly the same way that Antony was, I think the jury's going to come back quick on that one. I stare across at Rebecca, then flick my gaze to old Harold. She hasn't quite pieced it together yet. I never told her about Eddie Horn's theory about Harry Finn. She hasn't seen him in action. So, like Mikey, she sees only the little old man, the pathetic, worn-out, bereaved shell of who he used to be. The garage door rattles open. A familiar limousine rolls in and parks next to Mikey's SUV. The overhead door closes again. A new set of goons step out from each door of the limo. Then Tony Vitale emerges, a stern and angry expression on his face. What the hell is this, Mikey? He strides over, his cane clacking against the concrete floor until he reaches Mikey's side, then looks at Rebecca and me. I told you to leave these two alone. Mikey starts to respond, but 
Tony cuts him off with a look. Then he turns and addresses his own bodyguards. And I told you guys to protect them. How the hell did you let him get a hold of both of them? The goons don't reply. They merely bow their heads shamefully. Protect us? Did I do this? Did I have it all wrong? I had assumed the SUVs were Mikey's guys waiting for a reason to snatch us. But were they really protecting us from him? Mr. Vitali, Mikey says in a much less cocky tone. If I could just explain. I know he killed Antony. I can prove it. I caught him doing another guy the same way. Oh, really? Vitaly asks. Old Harold starts to laugh. Just a chuckle at first, then louder and stronger, until Harry Finn returns with a deep-throated guffaw. All eyes turn to him. Vitaly squints with recognition. Harry? Hi, Tony. This is the Goomba you replaced me with? You could have done better. Shut up, old man, Mikey orders. You shut up. Vitaly tells Mikey, without taking his eyes off Harold. Unless you're going to explain to me why you brought Harry Finn here. Mikey's expression changes as a note of recognition and surprise takes over his face. The shark? This old man is the shark? Vitaly ignores him. What gives, Harry? Harry nods toward me. Come on, you really think that civilian could take down anyone, let alone your son? No, of course not. Mikey is getting frustrated. Then who killed that junkie at the apartment? I did, confesses Harold. He nods back toward me. You really thought a guy who could barely see out of one eye, with a dislocated shoulder, a concussion, and who knows what else could take out someone with such precision? Then what the hell was he doing there? Mikey asks. He followed me there. Bullshit. How did she know you were there? He told her once he knew what I was up to. Mikey shakes his head. He turns to Vitaly. This don't make no sense. He points a meaty finger at me. That's Antony's killer. Harold ignores Mikey and speaks directly to Vitaly. We belong to the same grieving parents group. I've been going ever since Benjamin and his family were killed. At the last meeting, he confronted me and said he figured out who I was and what I've been doing. Vitaly's confused. What do you mean, what you've been doing? I took out that amateur after he missed me and killed Ben. I figured as much. And then, ever since, I've been doing the same for other parents, for those whose killers have escaped justice. Guess I wasn't as careful as I thought. Rebecca shifts her attention from Harold to me, wondering how much of this I actually knew and why I didn't tell her. He told me he knew what I was doing and begged me to stop. Your guy saw me talking to him on the street the other night. Vitaly looks to his men for confirmation, and one of them nods. He must have enlisted his wife and I suspect some of the other members of the group to keep an eye on me. And when I went to make my move, he tried to stop me, and in the process nearly got himself killed. Vitelli nods. So, this junkie made the fatal mistake of underestimating you. Harold nods. Vitelli takes a deep breath. And what about Anthony? There's a long silence. I killed Anthony, old Harold confesses. I killed Anthony because he took away this couple's son, and I killed him because you were the one who gave the order that took away my son. Vitelli quietly stares old Harold down. I've always known it was you, Tony. You shouldn't have let me live. You felt sorry for me, didn't you? Old Harold smiles, a man confident that, in the end, the scales were balanced. Vitelli nods. I was soft, but that's a mistake I can correct. 
He nods to his bodyguards. Kill him. The four men standing behind Vitaly all draw their guns simultaneously and aim at Harold. He just stands there and smiles, ready for whatever comes next. The door explodes open. Two bright flashes are accompanied by deafening bangs. Everyone's attention is diverted to the source of the noise. Harold snatches a gun from one of the bodyguards and fires it into the man's surprised face. Police! Everyone on the ground! Another of the bodyguards fires at the incoming SWAT team. They return fire. I rush over to Rebecca. I try to release her from the chair, but she's taped to it, so I just drag her along with the chair into a corner and push her behind a file cabinet, then shield her with my body. The gunfire rages for what seems like a few minutes. Then it stops. I stay where I am, my arms wrapped around Rebecca. In the quiet of the aftermath, I can hear her breathing. Is it over? she asks. I think so, I whisper back. We're fine now. Go with the story Harold told, okay? Okay. Clear, a voice yells. Clear, another one adds. Freeze, hands behind your head. Behind your head! I move my hands behind my head. On your knees, I obey. Face on the floor. I sit back, then lean forward and wriggle myself to a prone position. Ma'am, are you all right? I'm fine. He, he's with me. Just sit tight. We'll get it all sorted out in a minute. The SWAT guy who commanded me to the floor pats me down. Put your hands behind your back, one at a time. I swing my left hand behind my back and feel the cold grip of a handcuff tighten around my wrist. Then I work my right hand back. My shoulder twinges from its recent dislocation. The cop grabs it and slaps the other cuff on. He turns me onto my back with his boot. I told you, Rebecca says, now free from the chair. He's with me. He's my fiancé. I glance across the floor. Harold stares back blankly, the life gone from his eyes. 40. They lock me in a stark room with a stainless steel table, matching chairs, and a flickering fluorescent light. A paramedic tapes some butterfly stitches across the worst of my cuts and gives me a little white pill that takes the edge off my pain. Detective Court and another policeman question me. They tell me they just want to know what happened, and the sooner they get a statement, the sooner I can go home. I give them a version of old Harold's story. They write it down, offer to get me whatever I might need. I ask for coffee. It's been a long day and I'm starting to feel it. They bring me the coffee, then promise it will be just another few minutes. Two hours later, they return. Court now has a folder with printed photos from the warehouse and, he makes sure I see, Berman's apartment. They ask me to tell them the story once more. I ask for a lawyer. You only need a lawyer if you have something to hide, Court suggests. Mikey's talking. I again ask for a lawyer. Court leaves. An hour after that, Larry enters. What are you doing here? I'm your lawyer. Don't you have to be a lawyer? I am. He sits across from me. So what did you tell them? The old Herald story. Did you talk to Rebecca? Larry nods. That's it, I tell him. All right, then I think we can go. 41. On the way out, I see Eddie Horn bent over the desk of one of the detectives. He spots me and winds his way through the desks as Larry escorts me out to the station. He calls out my name. Hey, Eddie, I answer. You look awful. Nice to see you, too, but I can't chat just now. I just want to get home. Yeah, I'll bet. Listen, is it true what happened in there? Is what true? Harry Finn killed Tony Vitale and Mikey Manzanetti before the SWAT team shot him dead? Mikey's dead? I ask. 
Yeah. Court's an asshole. Yeah, he can be, Eddie concedes. So I was right. It was Harry Finn all along. I nod. And you thought you could stop him? I shrug. To me, he was just old Harold, another hurting parent, lost in the world of the living. Jeez, Eddie sighs. I know this is a lot to ask, but I'll tell you everything I know, I assure him. But I gotta go see Rebecca. We'll talk, I promise. Okay, he says, and backs away out of my path. I let Larry guide me toward the exit, but turn back to Eddie. Looks like you've got your best seller, I tell him. 42. Larry walks me to my apartment. Rebecca opens the door as we approach. Thanks, Larry, she says, as he hands her off to me. The touch of her arm around my back is soothing. She guides me into the apartment, through the living room and into the bedroom. What can I get you? She asks. A new face, I joke. She smiles and instead gets me some Tylenol and a glass of water. I swallow four of the tablets and lie down. Rebecca crawls into bed next to me. What went wrong? I ask. How did you end up in that place? Rebecca explains what happened after she eluded Vitaly's men. I saw another SUV behind me, only they weren't just following, they were chasing me. They managed to cut me off, then pulled a gun on me and made me get into their car and put a hood on. They tied me up at the warehouse, and Mikey started telling me that you had told them everything, but he was willing to let me go if I told Vitaly what we had done. I told him he was a liar, that you would never confess to something you didn't do. Then your message came in, and I knew you were okay. But he knew about the baby. He threatened to stab me in the belly. So I tried to warn you. Tried. I know, I tell her. Then fill her in on what happened to me from the time Amy dropped me off and Mikey brought me and old Harold to the warehouse. It's over, I say. I can't believe old Harold was doing the exact same thing we were. Only he'd been doing it for a lot longer and was a professional killer. She snuggles up next to me. We weren't so bad ourselves. You're lucky. She kisses me on the one part of my face that isn't bruised, broken, or cut. We were a great team, weren't we? I mean, all of us. I think old Harold would be proud. You might be right, I agree, as fatigue and Tylenol start to carry me away. Thank goodness we don't have to wake up tomorrow and do that again. I close my eyes, finally ready to rest. Yes, Rebecca agrees. We should wait until after the baby is born. Author's Note If you are a reader like me, you appreciate when a writer gives you a little glimpse behind the pages of a book in the form of an author's note. If you're a writer yourself, it's always interesting to get some insight into another author's process. And if you just enjoy reading a good book, it's nice to hear directly from the writer rather than only through the words of his or her story. So, dear reader, thank you for indulging me in this short postscript. The cliched question writers are often asked is, where do you get your ideas? I'm not sure every writer in each case can precisely answer that. Often ideas are flashes of inspiration or come from thoughts that percolate over months or even years. In the case of the Dead Kids Club, it came to me in a dream. Dreams are funny things. I don't often remember them very clearly, but on the occasion that I do, I'm often amazed at the way my mind constructs them. Sometimes the architecture of my dreams is reminiscent of the movie Inception. Sometimes I find myself in a situation where I've achieved professional success, or I check my investment accounts and discover I'm a millionaire. Other times, the dreams turn out to be a nightmare. The nocturnal hallucination that inspired this story, as you might have guessed, is one in which my son was killed. It was very disturbing, 
and it makes me uneasy to even write about it here. In the dream, much like the protagonist in this, The Dead Kids Club, I decided I would kill the person who had taken his life. I woke at that point, still overtaken by the emotions engendered by the dream. For a brief moment, I wondered if it was real, but that feeling quickly passed, and I returned to full wakefulness, assured that my son was fine, and it had all been just a bad nightmare. But a question remained. Would I actually do that? If I found myself in that situation, my child taken and his killer somehow escaping justice, what would I do? Almost instantly, the story for a novel came to me. Up until that point in my life, I had obtained some modest success writing for television. You can look at my credits at richhosick.com or on imdb.com. And I'd started a few books along the way, but had never finished one. It's a whole different process crafting a half-hour teleplay than writing a full-length novel. My Hollywood days were behind me. <coughs> my Hollywood days were behind me, and in between working full-time and being a dad, I decided this was a time to write a book, and this was the book I was going to write. The first three quarters came out easily, without an outline or anything other than the notion that my protagonist started from the same nightmare that was only a dream for me, and that I was going to use a character that had been kicking around in my head for a while named Eddie Horn, the Luddite crime writer. But then I hit a wall. I thought I knew how it was going to end, but suddenly the days of writing several thousand words at a time ceased. I was lucky to be able to craft a single paragraph when I could write anything at all. While I was stalled, I showed the first part to a friend and based on the feedback, went back and started rewriting what I had so far. And there he was. Spoiler alert if you peeked ahead to the author's note before reading the book. Old Harold. I didn't really know who he was when I first mentioned him in the chapter where my protagonist and his ex-wife go to the support group. He was just background, a part of the scenery. Why had I put him there? Was it really just random? Or was there a subconscious element at work? I remembered how those first chapters flowed out of me, how the members of the support group seemed to tell me their stories instead of me having to write them. So, old Harold, what's your story? I asked. Then he told me. Suddenly, the ending I thought I was writing toward became an exit I missed on my way toward where the story really wanted to go. Once old Harold revealed himself, I found other elements coming together in unexpected ways, at least unexpected to my conscious mind. The Dead Kids Club had their first real meeting in Rebecca's apartment, and the last line of the book, which was something I was sure of from the start, became more than just an idea and was now a destination within sight. Everything fell in place. I was on a roll. Once I was finished, I immediately started writing another book as I tried to figure out what to do with the Dead Kids Club. Eddie Horn makes an appearance in that one as well, and the idea of crafting a series of what I had come to think of as everyman thrillers, ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances, came to being. Although The Dead Kids Club is the first book I finished, my debut novel is a paranormal mystery based on a screenplay I had written years ago with my television writing partner Arnold Rudnick and parapsychologist Lloyd Auerbach. It falls into many categories. So if you like mysteries, thrillers, detective stories, or novels about the paranormal, you'll find something in our book Near Death that will captivate you. Visit at Rainy and Day on Facebook or rainyanday.com to find out more about Near Death, a rainy day investigation. The next installment of my Everyman Thriller series, from the files of Eddie Horn, is a story called The Tenth Ride. Make sure to like my Facebook page at RidMyRichHosek or join my email list at richhosek.com to find out when it will be available. And if you're a fan of Eddie Horn, as many of my early readers have been, he'll be getting his own book soon as well. Thank you for reading The Dead Kids Club. And pleasant dreams. Rich Hosek, January 15, 2013
2021. Acknowledgements. I have to extend a special thank you to Catherine Rudnick, my friend of more than 35 years and wife to my television writing partner, Arnold Rudnick. Kathy was the first person to read The Dead Kids Club and told me the original beginning, where I was trying to do something cute with the timeline of the story, was too confusing. Her comments and insights have always made me a better writer. Thanks, Kath. I also have to thank J.D. Meir, who needs to get busy and finish her own novel, for providing early feedback and editorial comments and recruiting other readers as I got closer to publishing this book. Thanks to Isabel Espinoza and Daniel Peppa for their editorial efforts, and Jade N., whom I consider my first fan, someone who knows me only through my writing, for her comments and encouragement. And of course, I am eternally grateful to Arnold Rudnick for his friendship and partnership during our early days making student films and cable TV productions at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, through our adventures in Hollywood, and for urging me to finally get this book out there. Although we are separated by half a continent these days, you are still my best friend, confidant, and advisor. Finally, and always, thank you to my family and friends. You mean more to me than I will ever be able to express. The End Thank you for listening to The Dead Kids Club on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. If you are enjoying this free presentation, I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or Audible and sign up for my email list at bedtimestories.studio. Make sure you rate and review on the apps that allow it, and share this podcast with anyone you know who enjoys audiobooks. You can also show your support by purchasing this or any of my other books in paperback or ebook editions on Amazon, or the complete audiobooks on Audible. And lastly, if you're a fan of paranormal mysteries, I hope you'll also check out the award-winning Rainy Day Investigation book series, co-written with Arnold Rundick and Lloyd Auerbach at rainyanday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. Thanks again, and all the very best.